Join me, if you will, in turning to the book of Acts, chapter 28. I'll be reading the first six verses. Acts 28, beginning in verse 1. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, today we enter the final frontier. Chapter 28, the last chapter of Acts. You didn't think we'd ever get here, did you? (laughs) A home stretch. We should be done by Christmas after all. It's also Reformation Sunday, in case our first hymn didn't give you a clue. It's always a good day to reflect on what Martin Luther started 504 years ago. It's only the beginning of what became an immense movement. Those of you who have read up on all of that, you know he was protesting many things, but in a lot of ways, maybe the main thing he was attacking was the idolatry of the church in Rome back then. Um, If if you know that John Calvin observed in later years after this that the human heart is an idol factory, and unfortunately that's true even of professing Christians. Uh, The old adage is the idol mind is the devil's workshop, and that's true in a sense, but Calvin's picture is maybe more accurate uh, because the mind is never completely idle. It races to make new things to worship. It's a very busy factory. So in other words, an idol factory is seldom an idol factory. (laughs) Are you confused yet? Point is, uh, even the best beginnings and with the best of intentions, uh, very solid institutions can become corrupted, and this is largely what had happened to the church in the 16th century. A lot of the problem, I think, stemmed from language barriers. Uh, The scripture and the mass were all in Latin. Many priests had never even read the Bible, and so the church came to embrace multiple corrupt and idolatrous practices. Layers of superstitions developed, and you had the elevation of the pope, and saints, and relics, and indulgences, and these essentially poisoned the church from within. Uh, making the gospel harder to see, and it was killing people, really. And, and, and Luther saw this among his own flock, and that's what caused him to make such a, such a scene. And it led to many reforms, including the publication of Luther's German translation of the Bible. But superstition can be a deadly thing. Uh, and let's be honest, it's what we as fallen people naturally do. It's kind of a cross between habits, which can be a good thing, Uh, and religious sensibility, which is a rational thing, but then you mix it with ignorance. Stevie Wonder calls superstition believing in things you don't understand. That's not quite right. I think we all believe in things that we don't fully understand, right? But I would argue that superstitions rightfully see that there's a spiritual dimension to things. 
uh, it just makes the mistake of trying to control those things or else claiming to understand elements of it that they can't possibly understand. I think every superstitious person is claiming to understand or control some sort of deep, dark secret. Uh, superstitions are so common, I think, because we are created as spiritual beings. Uh, Elder Seifert shared a quote with me last week. I don't remember where he said he, he heard it. He, he texted it to me. He said, we are not physical beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a physical experience, experience uh, which I think is very true. The truth of that is demonstrated in that even irreligious people, atheists and stuff, are often, at the same time, superstitious because they suspect that there's something more to life than what they can see. And I think that's why atheists can be OCD like anybody else, or have compulsive habits, or believe in good luck, or bad luck, as it may be. Superstition is everywhere. It's part of our sinful experience. It's a corruption of what we were meant to be, and it's because we were designed to worship. And when you don't have the Holy Spirit, we tend to worship idols and just get confused. But... All that said, superstition, I think, can point towards truth. It's actually a good way to introduce the gospel because every superstition implicitly acknowledges the supernatural. It demonstrates that everyone, even atheists and pagans, ultimately believe in a God who blesses good and condemns evil, or at least who should. Now, I think I get on this not to get sidetracked. I think you can see this in today's passage. I, I, I mentioned that the church through history has superstitiously chased after idols at times. That's true. We call them relics. That sounds a little holier. Um, Catholics have a lot of shrines, but even us Protestants tend to have our own holy places, right? Uh, for example, I have a lifelong dream of, of drinking in the pubs where the Inklings used to meet, right? And one of those pubs at Oxford University I don't know. If people don't know who the Inklings are, that's for C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, a bunch of other guys you've never read used to hang out and talk about their, their literature, right? And one of these pubs at Oxford University where they used to meet almost closed permanently during COVID. And, and some Inkling fans bought it and vowed to keep it open. And I was very much relieved because that's my dream. I got to get there and drink a beer. And I, and I know that drinking beer there will not make me the next C.S. Lewis, but somehow I, I feel like it'll make me have a connection with him. I want to go. And, and I think, thankfully, most of the places in the book of Acts that we would tend to treat like shrines are no longer there, or else it's unclear where they were to begin with, you know. And I, I think it's God's mercy to us that he has not preserved, for instance, every building that Paul's ever preached in, or the pulpits that he occupied, or the boxes that he stood on, or anything like that, or his hat, or his handkerchief, right? These things are gone. And, and I think that's good. It keeps us from being distracted by things that don't last, and speaking of things that don't last, we left our heroes swimming to shore from a boat that did not last. They were floating on the bric-a-brac from the ship, right? And, and they arrived with absolutely nothing except the hope that the island isn't full of cannibals, right? So God left them no mementos to commemorate their experience. There's no recreating the scene. There's no revisiting the ship to see what went wrong. And again, I think this is God's mercy, because not only can the ship not become a shrine now, it also eliminated the very visible reminder of their foolishness. If any of you have ever been to Cape May, you can go to the point there at Sunset Beach, and you can watch the sun go down over the Delaware Bay, and it's a very beautiful scene, but there's one eyesore that everybody knows about. Uh, there's a sunken concrete ship that was destroyed during a storm decades ago, and it's ugly, it's just a, a hunk of concrete and exposed rebar that's rusting away, just jutting up out of the water there. 
and it sinks a little more every year, but it's been there since before I was born, you know, and it's a perpetual reminder that something went terribly wrong, you know. And it makes me think, you know, be glad that God doesn't make all of our mistakes a permanent, visible marker on the landscape. If you can imagine people making pilgrimages to Paul's shipwreck, like the USS Arizona or something, and people would, too. I, I know they would. But in his providence, everything was destroyed. Whatever wood survived is going to be burned in this scene. So there's no going back. There's no reliving the past. No time to second guess. There's no tangible reminder of the bad decisions. It's all been erased. And they land with nothing but their lives and the shirts on their back. And also a newfound reliance on Paul's God. Because after all, Paul and his God are the only reason that they're alive to tell the tale. So they get on shore and they count heads. And they reassess the situation. Everyone's accounted for. The, the prisoners are all here. Okay, so now what? It says, after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. And so, the first men's fire night was born. <laughs> I just want to observe that the Maltese natives are a bit manlier than we are here at LVPC. (laughs) There was no cancellation due to rain. They do the sensible thing and build the fire bigger. (laughs) Now, some have observed our fire nights are not designed to have a curriculum or a lesson plan. That's intentional because fire night is usually about fellowship, not education. It's men being men. And we try to build big fires and we burn lots of crazy and questionable things. Furniture and legal papers and old oil that we can't identify and other combustibles, you know, because that's what men do. And being near a fire loosens men up and enables them to talk. Fire is a very inviting thing. It's an ultimate sign of welcome. And fire is hard to come by when you're living on a ship, right? Especially during a storm, so this must be nice. These guys have been cold for a while. Now, I'm a stereotypical dad. Uh, I hate turning the heat on every winter. It feels like admitting defeat. Uh, The rule is there is no heat until November. They may not touch it the entire month of October. And just because the the calendar switches tonight doesn't mean we're turning it on tonight either. It's like every day I can last into November feels like another victory, you know, like marching through the month, right? So, but even a cold-hearted miser like me knows that November nights get chilly, and it happens to be about November in this time of the story. And these guys haven't had heat in weeks. So what could be a more welcome sight than a bonfire at this point? And it had to be a huge fire because it's intended to warm up 276 cold sailors. So it's a massive and also festive scene. The island, Luke says, is called Malta. In Greek, it would be said Melita, which means place of refuge. God has a sense of humor after they abandoned Fairhavens, right? It's a small island. It's just below Sicily. It's now an independent country. Uh, It's one of many countries that used to be a British territory. Georgia and I have been watching The Crown. Some of the early scenes take place in Malta because Prince Philip was stationed there in the Royal Navy, so he and Elizabeth lived there before she became queen. And another fun fact, uh, the horrible movie version of Popeye starring Robin Williams, uh, that was filmed in Malta, and they actually preserved the entire set on the coast there so that you can go and visit and remember how bad the film was in person. Um, Now, other than that, Malta's not a place we typically think a whole lot about. 
Uh, I spent some time this week researching the map here uh, of this voyage, and I came across an odd question. I love maps. I'm a geography nerd. One of the blessings of being your pastor is you have to follow me on my rabbit trails when I get interested in something, right? So I discovered that there is actually some disagreement about which Melita they actually landed on, because apparently there were two islands that were both spelled the same way in Greek. One is the nation of Malta. The other is an island up near Croatia in the Adriatic Sea, and they're like nowhere near each other, right? And I spent more time than I'd like to admit wrestling through these two possibilities, and it took a while. I I think I finally settled actually on the traditional location that's reflected in the maps in most of your study Bibles, because Roman records seem to confirm that. But the important thing is not which island this is. Uh, That was certainly not the concern of the guys who just survived the wreck, right? They're not really asking questions at this point. All they know is, all they want to know is, is the island safe and can we spend the winter here? And, And they find that not only is the island populated, but the inhabitants are unusually kind, it says. They, they get this nice fire going. They're very friendly people. And yet, the Greek word that Luke uses for the native people here, the word gets translated that way, is actually barbarian. Now, if you based it just on that word and you translated this verse straight from the Greek and left it as it would was, you would almost wonder if the fire was meant to boil the new arrivals or something, right? You know? Barbarian's not a very nice term, not even by Roman standards. It's actually a a slight in Roman culture. It was a common way of describing not so much dangerous marauders, but non-Greek speakers. Barbarians are the sort of people who don't bother learning the national languages, meaning that in spite of the fact that this island is so close to Italy, these folks still stubbornly speak their own language instead of Latin or Greek. In this case, the Maltese people spoke Phoenician. So barbarian was basically a Roman pejorative for backwater hicks. Probably much how the Roman church thought of Germans in the 1500s. Uneducated rubes who won't get with the program and learn their Greek, or in that case, Latin. And I don't think Luke means it in a nasty way. It's just a term that reflects a very Roman attitude. Sounds kind of like the way we use barbarian now when you think about it. I consider my kids barbarians when they eat with their fingers. Same principle. It's uncivilized. Please act like we don't live in a cave. Jake. (laughs) Love you, bud. But uh, I say all this just to help, help you bear in mind throughout this passage that there is a language barrier here. There may be a translator or two available in the group, but this is Paul's first real work we've seen among people with whom he shares no common language. He's going to spend three months ministering to people through a language barrier, and that means that his actions will speak louder than his words. Now, in spite of the language and cultural barriers between this ship full of Romans and their Maltese hosts, they are treated very well. Paul's God has been more than generous. They haven't escaped the rain or the cold, but God has provided what they needed, a warm fire and friendly hosts, solid ground, kind people eager to make them comfortable for the whole winter. It's far better than anything they could have expected or demanded at this point. They have more now that they have nothing, which coincidentally is kind of the gospel in a nutshell. But in the midst of this beautiful scene of ecumenicism and intercultural bonding, something memorable and quite scary happens, fitting for Halloween, right? When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, 
No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. That doesn't sound good. I've seen, I'm not proud of this, but I've seen the movie Snakes on a Plane. Um, I'm even less proud of the fact that actually we own it. Um, But, so having seen Snakes on a Plane, I can imagine Snakes on a Ship even, you know. But, But somehow, even though it's not really logical, you're not really expecting such a thing here on the beach once they've reached safety. I mean, of all the things to happen, of every danger that Paul has faced over his career here, right? He has had prison uh, 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 beatings, ambushes, lawyers. Um, why a snake? It's like I've been trying to get my kids excited to watch the movie Patton. I don't know if they'll ever actually get on board with it, but one of the grand ironies of his life is you know, he survives all these great combat accomplishments in World War II only to die in a car accident in peacetime, right? Lawrence of Arabia, same kind of thing, survives World War I only to die in a motorcycle wreck back in England after the war. And here's Paul being done in by a reptile. It seems kind of anticlimactic, doesn't it? It's just a puny snake. And yet, it's not just a snake either that bit him. There's a perfectly good Greek word for snake. It's, it's phidi. That is not the word Luke uses here. The word he uses is echidna. Or she-viper, because the females are always scarier. Uh, some of you kids maybe have studied weird Australian mammals, because uh, all the weird mammals live down there, and you may know that the echidna today is one of those weird spiny creatures that lays eggs like a platypus. That's not what we're talking about here, even though it's the same name. Echidna in Greek mythology was a monstrous beast portrayed in art as a half-woman, half-serpent, seductive and deadly. Echidna was also the mother in Greek mythology of many other horrifying beasts in the Greek stories, including Scylla and the Gorgon and Medusa and the Sphinx and the Chimera and the Hydra and Cerberus, the three-headed giant dog. If you've read your Greek mythology at all or watch enough movies, that's bad enough, that list. Now, I'm not saying that a literal monster has latched onto Paul here, but this snake has earned its name. It's a nasty critter. It's a word used elsewhere in Scripture, typically translated, yes, as viper, and it can refer to a dangerous breed of snake, but it can also refer to people, and that's how Jesus uses it when he talks about the Pharisees. In other words, it's never a compliment to be called an echidna. I mean, even today, you don't call someone a snake and mean anything nice by it, right? And in Greek, echidna is like a much worse version of that. And I think, I mean, I haven't done the word studies to prove it, I think this all has roots in Genesis 3 where the devil appears as a serpent. Even Greek mythology echoes and parallels the biblical picture. So no wonder this was seen as a bad omen. To have a devil creature hanging from your hand is never good. Now, I've never been bitten by a snake. I came close in the encounter with the, uh, the rattler when we were camping a few years ago. It did strike at me. It got within a few inches of my hand, a la Paul. But unlike a Paul, it didn't get a hold. And uh, we did end up killing it. I, I still treat my walking stick as something of like a, you know, a, a weapon that's like got you know, a, a notch on it, you know, that kind of thing. But... While I escaped the attack of the snake, uh, 
I did have another creature bite my hand, and that was my sister's cat, which had escaped the house, and she didn't want to get lost, and I went to track him down in the next yard, and I tried to grab him, and he went to run, and I, I kind of landed down towards him, and I grabbed him on the back end, and he turned around and sank his fangs into my hand, and he was literally hanging on it for a split second, because cats are, in fact, devil creatures. And I got a very serious infection, uh, which I ignored for several days until I had dark streaks moving up my arm, and I eventually ended up in the ER and was told that it would have killed me if I'd kept ignoring it, and I spent a night in Abington Hospital on an IV drip. So, Satan has many disguises. (laughs) Serpentine and feline being the most common. I still have the scar from this cat. If I had written Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, Eve would have been tempted by the cat. But I will say in fairness, I was chasing the cat. The cat felt threatened. Maybe he could smell my general hatred of such animals anyway and and felt the danger, right? And, And likewise, in Paul's case, this horrible beast could be excused for feeling a little threatened. This is a large bonfire. The heat is intense, so he leaps on Paul for survival, you could say. But... While animals are simple creatures, they are under God's providence, and he uses them sometimes as judgment. If you'll recall, there's a great story, an incident where Elijah was mocked by some neighborhood kids, and God sent two bears to maul them. It's one of those heartwarming stories it's good to tell the kids at night. (laughs) But even in a pagan culture, animals are not outside the cosmic plan, right? And even pagans believe in justice, don't they? They may call it karma or any number of other things, but these Maltese natives are convinced that Paul must have had this coming if the echidna, this ferocious snake named for the queen of all monsters, was out to get him, then he must deserve it somehow. Cosmic justice is unavoidable. Or you could use Star Wars language. They're simply affirming there is balance in the force. This guy, Paul, who they have barely met, they know nothing about, just survived the sea by some miracle, but he can outrun justice. Now, there's an element of biblical truth there, isn't there? There's a certain logic to this attitude. It's not just superstition. God doesn't let the wicked off the hook forever. We know that. We believe that. There's a spiritual assumption underlying verse 4 that the gods are ultimately fair. The question is, what do the gods have against Paul? Because they must have something. Well, what was he doing? Is there evidence there? Well, he was collecting wood. Paul is being his usual helpful self. He's a shipwreck victim. He just swam across the bay. He must be exhausted. The locals are the one building the fire for these poor bedraggled men, and Paul's out here hauling wood, collecting branches to help the locals. And the Greek actually specifies that it was a large quantity. It's a big bundle. Paul is being a real workhorse here. He's not acting like a prisoner. He's acting like a leader. He is still modeling what it looks like to serve the others on the boat, right? Even after the boat is at the bottom of the sea. And these locals have no foreknowledge of Paul. They don't know his background, why he's here. And because of the language barrier, they haven't gotten to know him at all personally yet. They haven't been able to speak. All they know for sure is that he's being as helpful as he can be, and yet the echidna got him. So he must have done something wrong. 
Like Julie Andrews says, nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. She must have done something good for Captain Von Trapp to be standing there loving her. Likewise, Paul must have done something bad to be standing there with an echidna dangling from his hand. It's the same logic Jesus' followers used in John 9. Teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Someone had to sin. There's a logic behind the superstition. All people, even pagans, know deep inside that sin must be punished. And these locals are clearly familiar with this creature. Notice that it's not Paul's fellow fellow travelers who are panicked over the snake bite, right? It's the natives who know what's going to happen next. They know that they avoid this snake like the plague. They know. Now, I don't claim to know what kind of snake this was, though I tried to research it. Apparently today, only four types of snake snakes live on Malta, only one of which is poisonous, and the poisonous one, which is called the cat snake, ironically. Um, <laughs> the cat snake is only mildly toxic, apparently. It's actually a popular exotic pet, and it's actually an invasive species. It didn't live there until around World War I, so we can only assume that whatever bit Paul is a snake that no longer lives on Malta. Uh, FYI, this is actually one of the reasons some people argue for the other island in Croatia, because they have horned vipers on that island, which are very toxic. Yet regardless of all of that, the, the natives, they know this animal. They are convinced Paul will die from this. And while they are superstitious, they're not stupid. They've seen this snake, and they know it well. They know what happens to its victims. They have learned since childhood to steer clear of the underbrush, Not to play near empty holes and not to walk near these areas without shoes on your feet. This is not a way any of them would choose to die. It's ugly. It's extremely painful. Anyone who dies this way must deserve it. At least you hope they do. Because it's too horrifying to imagine that an innocent man might die this way. So it's very tempting at that point to fill in the blanks, to invent a backstory that will defend the justice of what's about to happen. Someone sinned, this man or his parents, someone had to have sinned, and the snake, the echidna, is proof of that. But what actually happens? Verse 5. He, Paul, however, shook off the creature into the fire. And suffered no harm. Just like that. Reverend Green has been telling me he's been looking forward to my sermon on Paul and the snake charmer. It occurred to me this week, Paul doesn't charm anything. What does he do? He kills it. Casts it into the fire and forgets about it. Now, on one hand, this might be a natural reaction to just sort of shake your hand when something like this happens, right? But from the perspective of the natives, this is like an incredible act of defiance. If the snake represents justice, this is like shaking a fist against fate. If the echidna represents judgment, then killing it represents rebellion. It's resisting the inevitable. It's spitting in the eyes of the gods. And Paul's behavior is unexpected in another way because he doesn't sit there nursing the wound or agonizing over it, right? He's not panicking. Presumably, he sits down by the fire and warms himself and presumably keeps chatting with the other men around him. Now, 
Bearing in mind again that Paul does not speak the local language. He says nothing to these natives, makes no speech to them about the power of God or anything like that. He doesn't say anything. And since he's not from Malta, he probably has no idea, honestly, what kind of snake this was. He doesn't necessarily have any reason to be fearful and possibly had no idea why the natives are all staring at him right now. You can almost see him smile and raise his glass and, yeah, thanks guys for having us. Uh, and you can picture the locals and like hear their conversation like, this guy has no idea. What a dope. Just wait until the poison sets in. But while they're all sitting around with bated breath, they suddenly reach a very different conclusion. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. It's quite the promotion, right? (laughs) This is the exact reverse of what happened to Paul in Lystra, actually. If you remember how the people of Lystra initially said Paul was like Zeus and Barnabas is like Hermes, and then Paul said, hey, stop saying that, so they stoned him instead, right? Those were good times. Um, this time it goes in reverse. Paul goes from a murderer who got what he deserved to a god. It takes about 15, 20 minutes to reach that differentiation. And I looked at this scene, and my first takeaway is that the people of Malta are a fickle, superstitious bunch. We've seen enough by now not to be so much surprised that Paul survives. I mean, God can handle snake bites. He handles lots of things. The bigger surprise is that Paul says nothing to correct their blasphemy. Because the last time this happened in Lystra, he immediately shouted them down. This time he says nothing. And again, my my best guess is that, once again, this is the language issue. It's quite possible Paul and Luke only understood what was happening later on. But in the moment, you get a picture of an unbelieving pagan culture, superstitious in the best and worst sense, because they believe in ultimate justice and they also believe in a higher power of some kind, but because they don't know the God of the universe, they get everything all muddled. They sense God's presence, but they can't interpret what they're seeing. And I I kept thinking all this week about superstition, because I felt like that was the most obvious thing in this passage, and I think it's something we all struggle with. We all like a little mystery in our lives. And we tend to let our ignorance guide us at times. In the meantime, Paul is just walking around being Paul. Once again, like so many passages we've looked at, Paul has no recorded dialogue in in this passage, right? And, And yet he creates a stir just by being himself. He's helpful. He's at peace with his circumstances. He is fearless. He is calm. He is unflappable. Paul walks around like a man who knows he will get to Rome. A man who fears nothing because Jesus made him a promise. So storms don't worry him, and snakes don't worry him. And that kind of faith confuses people. They can't decide whether he's crazy or else some kind of wizard. Faith like Paul's leads superstitious people to be confused, and Luke even seems to be amused by the sort of hot and cold response. Superstition thrives on the mysterious, and Paul is a mysterious kind of guy. To this day, it is sometimes said that the only reason there are no poisonous snakes in Malta is either because Paul drove them out of the island St. Patrick's style, or he somehow absorbed the poison and magically rendered this particular breed of snakes now innocuous. 
That's the kind of superstition that Luther was protesting in the 1500s. And it's the superstition that shows up on the beach in Malta. It's rooted in a spiritual awareness, but without a proper framework. It starts by saying, boy, that was amazing. He survived the snake bite. And it ends with hero worship and making shrines out of shipwrecks and such. It's worshiping God's works instead of God himself. I mean... This was no doubt an amazing scene, and it's one that pressed itself into the memories of the witnesses. There's no doubt that the snake was deadly, and there's no doubt that it got Paul. I mean, I know snakes are capable of quick strikes where you might wonder, did it get him or not? But this creature was hanging there, teeth sunk to the bone, so there's no doubt. And as a picture of justice, it was scary. The word Luke uses that gets translated in verse 5 as creature is not just animal. It's a word that carries a much nastier connotation. It can be translated as savage beast or poisonous animal, or it can be used of an insect, a worm, or even as a malignant ulcer. And yet, it has no power over Paul. Neither the storm, nor hunger, nor treachery, nor the viper can harm Paul. And the natives foolishly conclude that Paul, therefore, must be a god. But how foolish is that, really? Is their superstition really that crazy, or are they just trying to make sense of something they've never seen before? Superstition is born of ignorance, but nobody is completely ignorant. Georgia, as always, was very helpful in pointing out the important element I was missing as I analyzed this this week. I I thought all week about the superstition of the natives, but if superstition is rooted in a very rational feeling that there are spiritual forces at work, And if Paul doesn't speak Phoenician and all you can read are his actions and he just shook the echidna off like he was swatting away a fly, then what kind of spiritual force explains how justice can bite someone and yet leave him unharmed? How can anyone survive the sting of justice? And here's the dirty little secret. The natives are more right than they even know. Paul was a murderer. He admitted it before Festus and Agrippa. He not only saw Stephen stoned, he locked up and beat many other saints. He voted for their deaths in the Sanhedrin and approved it as he watched and tried to force them to blaspheme. Paul's the biggest sinner on the boat or the beach. And justice really must be satisfied. And yet when justice bit him, he shook it off and walked away unharmed. And that, brothers and sisters, is a picture of the gospel. Paul preached that gospel without words, just by his actions. Unlike every pagan on the beach, he has no fear of justice. Justice may chase him down, but it cannot and will not have the power to destroy him. And not because Paul absorbed the poison, but because Jesus had at Calvary. As Paul writes later, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or as John Newton says in one of his hymns that Georgia pointed out, when through grace our trust in Christ is, justice smiles and asks no more. Justice has no teeth for those who are in Christ. No wonder the locals were so confused. 
They are superstitious, and the superstitions need correcting, but they weren't wrong to be amazed and perplexed. God was clearly at work, but what kind of God would do such a thing? What kind of God allows his people to face ultimate justice and yet live? Well, it's the same God who sent his son to absorb justice on our behalf, the justice we so richly deserved so that we could become his children. That's the God we serve. That's the gospel that we proclaim, even if we don't know the language. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. We thank you for this miracle of Paul surviving the the toxic, venomous bite of the viper. But Lord, we thank you even more for the deeper spiritual truth that it points to, Lord. Lord, we all secretly in our heart of hearts live in fear of justice because we should. Lord, we're not right. We got problems. And yet in Christ, Lord, in your Son, justice has no bite, it has no teeth. The venom is gone, the sting is gone. What a glorious truth. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice of your Son. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the gospel, Lord. We thank you that there is no condemnation now in your Son for those of us who trust in him. Help us to live accordingly, Lord, and to preach that in our daily lives to those around us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.